Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit, charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media, sign up for the e-newsletter, and subscribe to my newly updated YouTube channel where this episode will soon be live. Enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest Syra Khan Gallo is deeply committed to bridging the disparities in diabetes outcomes by driving change in equitable and patient-centered healthcare. Syra's unique story includes meeting her husband through matching insulin pumps and how type 1 diabetes is now a family affair. Syra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And I got to say, so I saw something that you posted on LinkedIn and I was like, I've got to know this woman. And to the listeners, we had an initial conversation just to get to know each other. And I was fascinated with how much more interesting her story was through that process. So let's start with your diagnosis story. Sure. I was diagnosed when I was around eight years old, living in Pakistan, very different circumstances than both my kids and my husband's diagnosis stories. Did you have common symptoms or was there your family noticed anything or? Yeah, I think, you know, in hindsight, I definitely had all the symptoms was using the bathroom a ton, was drinking a lot. And, you know, from a not from somebody or from a family who wasn't aware of what those symptoms were, I remember drinking, you know, very sugary drinks to kind of help quench my thirst at that point. And in hindsight, it's like, ah, that really didn't help. (laughs) But, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Definitely had all the typical symptoms. I remember going to a, you know, going to the doctor multiple times and they told me and my mom that I was making it up because I didn't want to go to school until oh. I went into a DKA coma. And so that, that's my diagnosis story. And yeah, I still remember waking up in the hospital and seeing my dad giving an orange a shot and being like, what is, what is happening? Yeah. Well, and do you have a family history of type one diabetes? None at all. Which is so, oh, I mean, we do crazy. now. Yeah, right. And we're definitely going to get into that because it's this is I now honestly I think this is the first episode that I've ever done with when the whole family actually has type one. And we'll really dive into that here in a second. So I want to talk about one of the things because that I found so interesting and something that I wanted to do growing up, but diabetes at that point prevented me from joining the Peace Corps. So let's talk about your time. Did you have any problems applying and once you're accepted, what did diabetes look like when you were in a different, different country? Yeah. So the application process was definitely longer for me because of my diabetes, you know, because of my having type one. So I think just as a, a side note, the process for applying to the Peace Corps, and I'm not a Peace Corps representative. So just, you know, this is my yeah. personal experience is that they kind of try to weed out people who can't make it through the yeah. application process, right? Sure. Because it is an intense commitment. It is you know, you're not just going for a week or for a month, right. like this is two, two years and three months of your life that you are essentially dedicating to a specific place and community. And through the application process, they try to, you know, essentially confirm that you're really dedicated to this. And, yeah. you know, the way that kind of culminated in my own experience, with the Peace Corps is three people who made it and were part of the training cohort that I was in, didn't end up 
going through and getting sworn in because it's a lot and um, it's intense. And they realized through the training process that it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for them and they they didn't want to stay. Right. And that's after having gone through the intense application process in the first place. So there's a little bit of that. They're trying to prevent that because it's a lot of money for the Peace Corps to send folks in the first place. Right. And so preventing that uh, as early as they can is, is always a good idea. So my, originally I was actually assigned I'm going to probably make a mistake because this was so long ago, but I was assigned somewhere else. It was like a rainforest in Brazil or something. It was something that's really cool. And I was really excited about it. And it was better suited to my actual skill sets. But they kind of rescinded that offer after kind of looking at my medical history because it was like, here's where you were assigned as your skill set. And then you go through the medical clearance portion. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's kind of where you probably got, got sidetracked and where yeah. they said no. And they essentially, yeah, took back that original offer that I had. I was devastated because it was like, oh, does this mean I can't go and all that right. kind of stuff because it was too remote of a location for them to provide medical care to me, essentially, is what it came down to. Like, it would have taken them helicopters to get me my insulin in the first place. And oh. that was a liability they didn't want to take on. Again, because this was so long ago, I don't fully remember how it played out, but I do remember getting another offer. I think it was probably six months later because I remember I had all my plans set on like, oh, here's my start date and here's when I'm going to be, yeah. be leaving. And then it was just kidding. You're not actually suited for that spot. And you know, now we don't know when, and it kind of went back into the the process. And then about six months later, I got another offer to uh, be placed in the Caribbean. And, you know, it was essentially partly because of the medical care that was available there and how close in proximity and how easy it was for them to get supplies over in the first place. Right. And so that's kind of how it worked for me. So it was definitely a longer process. I do remember having to do a ton of blood work to kind of confirm the big thing they were looking for is that I hadn't had a lot of low blood sugars. So I know yeah. in recent years, we've all kind of heard a little bit about the process of being allowed to become a pilot with type one, right? And that's yeah. one of the big things you don't want to be low while you're flying kind of a thing. Yeah. So kind of confirming that you've been, you know, that you haven't had any hospitalizations or adverse events with kind of what they were looking for in my medical history. And thankfully I hadn't had any scary lows. And so that was the main, I think the reason they essentially gave me permission. Well, and let me ask you with that too, what year was this? I'm aging myself. I was in the, I left for the Peace Corps in 2009. Yeah. Cause I graduated in 2008. Okay. So this is pre-CGM. And so at yeah. that point, what was your regimen? What were you using? Yeah, I was on just manual pump therapy at that point. So I think I was using Humlog and a Medtronic pump, the pump that I, I'm giving away the next part, but that I met my husband yeah. through and finger pokes. And yeah. what they were looking at was A1C. And I want to say that I, I don't know what their criteria was. I'm assuming it's because my A1C was under nine and that I hadn't had severe lows was kind of what they were looking for at that point. I don't know what the criteria is anymore. I do know that when I left, they had very specific locations in which you were allowed to serve if you had type one, like they became even more strict about it after I I served. It was, you know, there's these specific locations in which we can provide that care. And then it would kind of came down to your skill sets and whether you can match someone with both, you know, whatever medical criteria they have along with their skills and language and all that kind of stuff. So I'm assuming, I don't know if that's still the case, if they, you know, still allow you know, if they have additional criteria and their medical requirements at this point, I have no idea. I haven't kept up to date with it. Okay. We're going to go into here in a second about how you met your husband, but what current, what is your current regimen since insulin pumps, CGMs, everything is so vastly different. Yeah, very different. I'm currently a DIY looper. So I use an Omnipod and I'm still on the G6 because we are waiting for my husband and I to 
use up the last of our G6s so that the girls can be on the G7s. Yeah. And that's okay. So that's a great lead into, let's talk about how you met your husband. So I was walking, he tells the story much better, but I was walking into a building and I had my pump out because I was bolusing and he was walking out and he goes, nice insulin pump. And I was really excited because I was, I thought I was like the only person on the Island that knew what an insulin pump. I don't know if you remember the days of being asked if it was a pager. (laughs) Um, And that was, you know, a very normal thing. And especially while serving in the Peace Corps where technology is not a thing there. Like even right now, CGMs are not a thing. Basic getting a finger poke is a massive thing as it pertains to just the access to diabetes management tools over there. The fact that somebody noticed that and knew exactly what it was my like, (laughs) how did you know? And he pulled his matching insulin pump out. And yeah, we haven't stopped talking since then. I love that. And so that was what, 2010, right? That was 2010. Yep. Okay. So how long after that meeting, did you get married? We got married in 2012. So not that far after. And I think one of the things that really drew me to this interview was you talking about once maybe dating him or getting married that you realize how vastly different diabetes is between the two of you. So can you speak to that a little bit about the thoughts of I'm not non-compliant? My diabetes is different, you know? Yeah, I was definitely a labeled as a non-compliant patient growing up. And again, in hindsight, it's like I was just a teenager who just wanted to be just like all of my other friends and didn't want to have mm-hmm. to deal with all the pains of carb counting and just all, all of it, right? Yeah. Especially in a pre-technology era. And I know that I got to a state of essentially, well, there's a different can of worms, but I remember sitting it down. My husband and I were really into cereal. Don't judge us. So a long time ago, <laughs> I remember we would sit down and we were like, you know, talking through like, ah, oh, how much would you bolus for this? Right. And he put in a number, I put in a number. And then like hours later, it was like my blood sugars had skyrocketed and he had leveled out at like maybe 200. And it was just like, we did the exact same thing. Like yeah. obviously, you know, factoring in for carb ratios and that sort of thing. Like we were on the same pump on the same health insurance, same everything. Right. Yeah. But didn't have the same results. Right. And so it was just like, what the hell, why is it that I can put in the same amount of effort as you? It's not that I didn't pre-bolus. It's not that I didn't carb count. It's not that I didn't do all the things that, you know, providers are telling you as a patient to do. Why is it that this didn't work for me, but it did for you. And so that was just kind of this like eye opening thing for me to kind of see play out in real life and the variability across. And, you know, that, that concept of your diabetes may vary really being, clear in that one example. And to be fair, it wasn't just one example. That was just, I think, the example that kind of made me start looking for it and noticing it and just kind of realizing that the fact that it's not just carbs and insulin the way we're yeah. taught, right? Like we're taught like, oh, as long as you have insulin, you're fine. That's all it takes with diabetes is blood sugar management and insulin delivery. Like, And realizing, no, there's so much more to it. And we know now through things like I'm blanking, but you know, the, the 42 variables, I argue yeah. that more than that, right? Like here's all these other things that you need to consider, but that still isn't the norm of what's taught. Like you have yeah. to be really active and super involved in the community to really come across that narrative. And it's yeah. not something that's taught to nutritionists or dietitians or anything as a whole. Like here, it's not just these two variables. And to be fair, I think that the reason they don't do it is it's overwhelming to be like, here's all these things that could possibly impact your blood sugars if you're newly diagnosed. But on the flip side, as a patient, when you're coming in and, you know, you've got 
not the best numbers, especially going through puberty, it ends up being, oh, it's because you didn't do something right. You know, instead of it being like, okay, what else could be going on and how can we help you? Hopefully that's changing, but. Well, and I got to tell you, I had lunch yesterday with a uh, dear friend of mine. He's a few years younger, but we were having lunch and there were other people at the table and we were, and one of the other people at the table is a father of a type one young lady. I think she's 15 and he ordered a steak with polenta. And he wasn't sure what polenta was, honestly. And I was like, how many? And of course, I don't have any filter. And I was like, so how many carbs? What are we going to do for this? Because anywho, just how we were calculating things and just thinking about the diabetes and how he was going to bowl us, which he's on a pump, were vastly different. And I'd be curious. I need to follow up with him to see how his blood sugar panned out because he was frustrated going into that lunch because it had been high that morning with a strong coffee. So it's one of those like, Unless you're sitting with somebody that has it, you really might not know that's, I don't know, just the norm or whatever, how it goes down. But with that being said, after meeting your husband, you have, which, I mean, I was told not to have children. Granted, it was 1984. There were a lot of other factors. It was a death sentence. I will soon celebrate my 40th anniversary. I've outlived every doctor's <laughs> yeah, um, situation there. So you have two girls, right? I do. I do have two girls. I do know that growing up, there was this like, oh, we don't know if you'll be able to have kids. I don't know if I was ever given this like, don't do it. But there was definitely this like, oh, we don't know. And but at the same time, we were also told that like, oh, the cure is five years away. Crap. That was always (laughs) on the when I was, you know, eight years old. They're like, oh, don't worry. You won't have to deal with it by the time you think about having kids. Right. So there was always that. But I want to say when we went in for we went in for pre, I forget what it is, like genetic counseling before we decided to have kids. Cause yeah. we have a lot of other, I'm, I'm blinking on words. We have a lot of different conditions. Yes. yes. My husband has a history of autoimmune conditions on his side. No, no type one, but like his grandfather had a type one condition. His brother does like, there's a yeah. couple of things on his side. And uh, I have a strong history of like cancers and a couple of other things on my side. And so we were like, why makes sense? Why don't we go and kind of see yeah. uh, what the, likelihood of us passing on crappy genes to our children are and it was the most unhelpful like session we'd ever had because the counselor basically told us like why are you here that's not how it works and I kind of want to go back to her in hindsight and be like really that's not how it works um obviously we don't actually know how it works and I always tell people because I've had a few people reach out you know since then especially the type one couples that I'm friends with who have gone on to have children essentially kind of, you know, asking and talking through our experience. What I've always told everyone is when we walked out of that meeting, I remember looking at him being like, that was super unhelpful. And both of us sitting down and being like, well, let's pretend that she told us there was a hundred percent chance that our kids were going to have type one. What would we do then? And it was like, well, we'd we'd still have them because we're fine. And that is not a reason that I would choose to not have children. And I still stand by that. And, you know, it's not something I wish on anybody, but I would never wish for a world without my children. And I'm, even if I had known now, like what I know now, I would obviously still go through all of it all over again. So did you have, and maybe this isn't a fair question, but healthy pregnancies? I had a miscarriage the first time around. So before both of my children are rainbow children. So my first, first experience with pregnancy did involve a miscarriage, which is a whole nother can of worms of a topic that I think is not covered enough. I think it is still too taboo a thing for something that is so common. And the other two pregnancies were healthy, depending on what your criteria is. Yeah. My my first one, they said she had intrauterine growth restriction, but she came out just fine and was okay. at a more than healthy weight. And that was actually why they 
had insisted on, again, forgetting all the words that we used to be so familiar, but inducing me at 37 weeks, which led to a like 30 hours of labor and an emergency C-section, whereas my younger one was a VBAC and like very different pregnancy experiences. And I honestly give a lot of rationale behind like the differences in experiences Mm -hmm. to the providers that I had. So Mm -hmm. the OB that I had the second time around was amazing. Like I would get pregnant again just to have him as my endo because he (laughs) was just so amazing and was the first provider in my entire history of having type one to kind of, I think he looked at me and said something along uh, lines of like, here's what I'm seeing, but you know your body better. So let's talk through what's happening. And it was just this like weight off my shoulders of, you know, somebody talking down to me and telling me, you know, what I should do when they didn't know what my lived experience with type one was, right? Like I remember sitting in his office and this was pre, you know, the state of things being the way they are right now, pre me knowing that type existed, but he like downloaded my, my pump reports, my CGM reports, and literally like put them on the window behind him. And like my older daughter was like crawling on the ground at the same time. was like, here's what I'm seeing. And here's what I think could change. But you tell me, does that feel like it makes sense to you? And it was just this yeah. really validating, like, experience if you know your body better. And yeah, I feel like if he trained all the endos, the world would be a much better place. Oh, and pay yes to that. Well, let's talk about, okay. So both of your daughters have been diagnosed with type one diabetes. Let's talk about their diagnosis stories. Very different diagnosis stories. My older daughter was diagnosed when she was 10 months old and it was really quick. Like she threw up a handful of times the first day. I remember her waking up with cosmal breath the next day, (laughs) took her straight in to, I can't remember if it was urgent care or the, it was, I want to say the urgent care. And I basically told them like, look, she has type one. I remember taking her in to the pediatrician like that week and telling her like, Hey, this is what I think is happening. I think she has type one. And she's like, Oh no, elevated blood sugars are normal when you have an infection. And I was like, no, that's not true. Uh, So it was a lot of that. It was a lot of, you know, reminding me of my own diagnosis of kind of being told that something else was happening. And I literally walked into the urgent care and essentially told them, this is what I think is happening, but I don't know. I, don't, I can't just give her insulin because I don't know what she needs. And it was a pretty traumatic diagnosis for her. We honestly could have lost her because at that age, the impact of high blood sugar oh, yeah. is insanely different. And one of did the you, scariest weeks of my life. How did you test her blood sugar? Were you doing it like on a, the finger pad pumps. of her foot? Yeah, we did a finger poke the first time when, after her diagnosis, we definitely did a lot of finger, uh, a lot of toe pokes because, you know, I was still nursing her. And oh. so it was just really easy to like nurse her and then have my husband, you know, poke her yeah. foot while she was doing that. Cause she would be distracted. That's all honestly yeah. also how we did all of her shots was to kind of, you know, <laughs> now we distract her with TV at that point. I distracted her by nursing her. So yeah, very different diagnosis than my younger daughter who was diagnosed March. Well, her diagnosis is kind of, I don't know if I can say this is when it was, but what I remember is March of 2020 is when we realized that she had it because a little bit of background, we also have a diabetic alert dog. Yeah. And he was really insistent on his alerts and, you know, all of us were in range and it was like, oh, well, we haven't tested her in a bit. We usually were testing her like once a month just to kind of yeah. give ourselves peace of mind. And so we knew what was normal. Usually she was under 80. And so we did a finger poke and she was like 170. And I was like, oh shit. So we... We waited till that night, that evening, and we did a handful of more finger pokes throughout the evening. And she was like two something while she was sleeping. And I just remember my husband and I just crying when we did that finger poke at at night, seeing those numbers. And it was like, crap, here we go again. We took her in the next day to our pediatric endo. 
they ran uh, we also put a sensor on her and they ran blood work turned out she had like I can't remember two or three of the antibodies at that point, but she was back in range, right? Like we ended up because we had sensors, we literally watched her pancreas stop working and then got to choose when to give her insulin, which is really weird. Typically you get diagnosed and it's like, here you go. You have to go on insulin versus we think she needs insulin. And so January 11th uh, was the day that we put her on insulin. And then for her, it was, I think she could have stayed on long acting for longer than she did but she couldn't quite grasp why her diabetes looked different than the rest of us. Yeah. And you know, why she needed a shot every day, which no kid likes seeing a needle come at them yeah. versus how her sister could just do a site change every three days. And so she actually chose to go on pods pretty early on because that was what she saw her sister doing and what she wanted to do as well. So you guys all, I mean, I can't imagine how much this costs, but all four of you are potters and then you've got the Dexcom supplies, all the insulin. What if one of your daughters came to you and said, Hey, I want to be on the tandem T-Slim or, you know what I mean? Like, already you done know, that. it's just, it's already done that. It's- <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so we, my husband actually only just switched to using pods. He was on the Medtronic system up until maybe a month ago. And I know he tried the 10 day infusion and extended wear, whatever, I think it's either seven or 10 days that you can wear those because he was still looping with the Medtronic pump and he has very sensitive skin. And so the infusion sites for Medtronic are a little bit less irritating for his skin. You know, he goes through those seasonal allergies where the Dexcom is, you know, makes his arms. Yeah. It's all (laughs) all the irritations. And if you know, you know, so he just switched. And so there was a period where my daughter essentially was like, I want to be on a tube pump like daddy. And so we happen to have a tandem pump as well. (laughs) when we were switching insurances, it made sense to just kind of take advantage of what's available. Uh, yep. And so we have a tandem pump at home that we have let her use over like breaks and that sort of thing. The only annoying thing that we have to consider is just training for school because they both have, they have like the help, the school nurse and the help clerk and the aide that, you know, need to know how to do all the things. Yeah. And because the tandem system is a little bit different, we've, she's used it a handful of times during different breaks, but that algorithm just doesn't work that great for her. Like she runs high the whole time. And yeah. one thing that is really important for us with kids, kids are fickle. They will tell you they're going to eat something and they'll start eating it. And you're like, all right, they're really going to eat it. And then just kidding, yeah. two bites later, I don't want it anymore. And so editing <laughs> cards is a feature that you know is in DIY loop that does not exist in any of the other systems. It's super yeah. important to us. And honestly, being like tube free is just a lot easier as a kid. Yeah. And so we, we've tried it a few times, but honestly, the number of times that infusion sets got ripped out was kind of like, just not, this isn't working. Yeah. Not worth it. I remember one of the days that she was using it because it's not habit for me to use the tandem infusion sets. I like really screwed up one of the site changes. And like, mm-hmm. I think I put it on her without taking the stickies off and then like actually stuck the needle in her. And it was like, Oh shoot. Like it was, it was a bit traumatic for both of us. And it was like, never mind, I'm so sorry because it just wasn't, it wasn't what I was, you know, used to doing over and over again. And it was totally, you know, my bad and, and screwed up the site change, but I think I may have traumatized her a bit from wanting to use it for a little bit unintentionally, but that kind of stuff happens all the time. And the, the thing that we try to give them is agency wherever we can, the way I mm. teach my kids about diabetes is, cause I feel like I didn't get that as a kid. It was like, here's what you have to do. And that's it because there yeah. weren't any options, right? It was yeah. like, 
70, 30 insulin when I was diagnosed and you had to eat at the same time every day. Yeah. I know that. And so the, the way I tell them is like, there's things that you can change and the things you can't change there. I can't change that you need insulin to survive. Like I, that is not something I can do for you, but I can change, you know, where you're going to put this pod and what you watch during your site change. And do you want your site change now? Do you want it after your bath? Like things like that, where it's like, here's where I can give give them some agency, but you know, decorating your pods, which one do you want to wear? All of those variables, right. Including if you really don't like pods right now and you want to switch to the tandem or you want to switch to shots or you want to switch to finger pokes, like all of those are options, but here's what the options are. And, you know, we try to do that as much as possible, regardless of what is more comfortable for me, if that makes sense. So I've never had a diabetes alert dog and I've been around quite a few of them. And one of them happened to pick up on the fact that my blood sugar was high and I had to convince this dog (laughs) that I had already given insulin. I'm like, I promise I've done this, but so like, does your dog get any sleep? I mean, my God. And does he pick up on everybody? He does. Unfortunately, when we got him, our intention was our hope had been that he would only work for our older daughter because she was so young. She couldn't tell us how she was feeling. Yeah. And honestly, I needed something cute and fluffy out of all of the diabetes. (laughs) So it was like, can I get something good out of this? Um, So he was my emotional decision to her diagnosis. But it doesn't work that way. High blood sugar smell mm-hmm. the same, regardless of they're, who they're from. We probably could have trained him a little bit better and essentially told him we only wanted alerts when the smell was coming from her. Yeah. But in hindsight, that's kind of how we knew about it, my younger daughter. So I don't regret it. He is he is definitely overworked. He gets a break when so my husband doesn't necessarily work from home most of the days. He goes to the different job sites. And so when the girls are at school and he's not at home, he gets a little bit of a break when my blood sugars are in range and it's yeah. just, it's just my smell. And, but he is, he's definitely an overworked pup and, <laughs> you know, we, we try to spoil him as much as we can, but there's lots of smells going on at any given time. And to your point, they do not know when you have treated a low or a high, they just know that uh-huh. the smell is there and they're supposed yep. to let you know. So there are times where we have to distract him with like peanut butter because that takes him a little bit longer to yeah. And by yeah. that time, maybe I'll be in a little bit of a better range, but he's yes. learned pretty well. You get one treat for the first time you alert. And just because I still smell like this in 20 minutes doesn't mean you're getting another alert because otherwise he's, <laughs> he's already a little chunkier than he should be. So. <laughs> well, okay. So I want to kind of start wrapping things up with the fact that what another major reason why I wanted to interview you after reading what you put out on LinkedIn is because you work for Tidepool. And they just did a partnership and I want you to speak to, and I don't know what the words are here. I'm fumbling through this, but to me, it's all about data needed. And as women, we need more information and especially the difference between male and female diabetes, whatever that looks like. So let's talk about the project that you're currently working on. I don't even know if that's the right word. Yeah. So a little bit of background, the typo period project is something that uh, we started in 2021, we conducted a bit of a pilot study to kind of see what was going on and what we had been hearing a lot about. And, you know, one of the experiences that I've had myself is the impact of your periods on diabetes management, right? And so that example of the cereal with my husband, it was most likely because it was the week before my period. And if you, if you are a person who has a period, who also has type one, you know, how much it can like wreak havoc on yeah. what you normally do. And so 
the what we essentially have come across in all of the work that we've done with the Tidal Period Project is there's pretty much no data supporting like mm-hmm. this is how diabetes impacts women differently. The handful of studies, I think most recently, there's more that has come out around pregnancy, but what about when you're not pregnant, right? That yeah. factor is just like we are outside of our, you know, reproductive use cases that we'd love for yeah. there to be a little, a lot more data to kind of substantiate the claims. I know that one of the experiences that I've personally had is a provider telling me like, well, no, there's no impact because there's no data to support that. And I was like, okay, thanks for <laughs> mansplaining this thing that I have lived with for forever. <laughs> so yeah, just being able to highlight the fact that this, you know, people aren't making this up. This is a real experience yeah. with clinical evidence to support the experience that people are having is what we're hoping to collect. And so we have a partnership with DC Burn, which is this wonderful foundation based out of Switzerland. They have some amazing academic academic folks who are working with us on this. And we've spent a lot of time kind of building out the data that we need to collect to really get some good information. And mm-hmm. we're at the point where we are recruiting for this study and numbers really help because the more data you have, the more strong your the stronger your evidence is, right? You know, if you have 10 people telling you that this is an experience they've had, there's just so many variables that you can consider well oh maybe they're on this type of pump and that's why this or you know there's all sorts of things there but the bigger sample size you have the more you can kind of cut through the noise and say no this is a trend that we see across a massive group of people and they all have type one and being biologically female in common and so really being able to get as much data as we can to support all of that and our intention is that we'd love to one, what, what we've been doing is trying to elevate the conversation around the topic in the first place. So it's mm-hmm. not as taboo of a thing to talk about, and it's not something that people continue to ignore. Separately, this clinical evidence to support everything is something we're really working on. And the other part or the other goal that we have is also essentially building tools at the end of that, right? Once we yeah. have the clinical guidance to really say, here's what we see is happening, and here's the variables that are that are impacting all of the numbers that we're seeing, being able to really build out like, okay, well now here's what you can do about it. And here's how we can yeah. make this part of your life a little bit easier because right now that's really missing in a lot of people's care. Well, I gotta say, A, I applaud everything that this is about and the reason why I'm interviewing you and all of the information about how you can get involved or learn more will definitely be in the show notes. But Mike, you know, I keep thinking about the medical community and they can't keep up to date with just insulin therapies and and pump therapies and technology and all the things. How do you guys plan to, how do you and your team, not guys, um, plan to get this out to the medical community? Yeah. So we have, uh, one of the great things about Typo is we have a really strong set of relationships with folks across the industry. And so we really pride ourselves on whether it's with academic institutions, with researchers, with, you know, medical device companies, with, you know, folks at the at ADA and ADCES and all of these different, anybody that you can think of that's involved in the diabetes space, we have some form of a relationship with them. And so once we have, we've had a lot of those conversations and it keeps kind of coming back to this, this cycle of, we don't have the data to support this. Like every, you know, even for the folks who are like, yeah, you're right. We see this as a problem, but here's for us to do anything about it. We need this clinical evidence to support it. It's kind of what it keeps coming back to. You know, once we get that, I'm not, I'm honestly not worried about that part about getting it out to the medical community. Adoption is a whole nother can of worms. Like that is a whole different thing, but you know, having it frame some form of clinical guidelines that could be, you know, that the ADA could support us on, or they, you know, is something what that we are hoping for. We're just not there yet because we don't have that data and that clinical evidence. 
just yet. So this is the opportunity to reach the diabetes female masses to let them share their personal journey so that it will help us long-term and all the young ladies that are, are living with this disease. And I have to ask you just one last question because, you know, like I said, I've lived with diabetes now almost for 40 years. No one in any situation, whether my endocrinology group, my regular GP or my OBGYN have ever talked about the fact that women with type one diabetes are more likely to go into menopause seven years on average earlier than the average person. Has anyone ever spoken to you about that? We have had lots of conversations around the need for support for menopause and perimenopause. And especially, I know we've had a lot of uh, people share their personal experiences of how much harder diabetes management is during that, yeah. that portion as well. But again, it comes down to the evidence to support how to do things and whether or not that's really the case. Like there's just <laughs> all of those, those things. And it's because, and this is not unique to the diabetes space. If that makes right. anyone feel better, women have been ignored in clinical evidence for a lot of these things because periods are hard to control for. It's a variable that nobody wants to deal with. And so that's yeah. kind of a little bit, it doesn't, that doesn't mean we're okay with it. We're working. That's why we're, well, we want to do something about it, but this isn't unique to diabetes is kind of what I wanted to to share. And the whole fab tech industry is trying to, you know, move away from that, but yeah. we've got a long way to go. And yeah, so menopause and perimenopause, just all the different stages of life that a person yeah. might go through are things that we have that we, you know, are fully aware of wanting to support. This stage is not actually like for this clinical, like this uh, study, we're actually not collecting any data on that. So I don't want to give any false hope on like, oh, this will also help. This specific (laughs) study will also help with that because at at this point it won't, but our intention would absolutely be to get to that point where it's like, all right, now that we've validated this experience across this specific phase of a menstrual cycle or, or, you know, a person's life, then we can kind of substantiate the need to continue to do that work beyond when you're having your period. And the rationale for that was honestly a little bit of like, that's the largest case. You know, if you're thinking about, usually when you look at any kind of diabetes innovation, it's like, how can we impact the most people living with diabetes, right? So if you look at a lot of the different studies around exercise and all those kind of things, it's because, okay, that's going to help the biggest set of people living with diabetes. And so we've cut that in half to be like, all right, half the population is is impacted by this. And this is what we're going to focus on. But even then, that's not necessarily true because even if you say, Half the people living with diabetes are biologically female. How many of them are actually of menstruating age? Because to your point, you know, yeah. a certain segments of them are going to be, you know, post-menopause and the other part of it is going to be pre-menstruating age, right? So it's just thinking through the different phases, how we can support. For me, selfishly, I'd love for us to get to the point being able to support parents and teenagers going through puberty because that was the yeah. hardest part of diabetes. Yeah. Well, not the hardest part. That's, I don't know how to quantify that, but it was, it was a significantly a, difficult yeah. portion of my life. And yeah. if we can help prevent that, I think it sets a lot of folks up for, for success. And honestly, just those really hard years. Diabetes is hard enough. Being a teenager is hard enough. And yeah. combining those things is not fun. And so if we can <laughs> somehow be like, you're not alone, you're not crazy. This is harder for you at this specific yeah. stage of your life. And maybe we don't even get to the point, I highly doubt this is the case, but maybe we don't even get to the point of saying like, here's what you can do to actually get your time and range to be better during, like maybe we can't even impact clinical outcomes, but if nothing else, if we can help your emotional well-being during that phase, yeah. I think that is 
totally worth this entire effort altogether. Well, and that is the very reason why I wanted you to be my guest today. So I'm very excited for the study and I will definitely follow up with whatever you put out articles wise. And like I said, in the show notes, it will definitely, there'll be links to how you can get involved, excuse me. So thank you so much for being a guest. And I look forward to seeing with the data that you collect, what outcomes come from it. Thanks so much for having me. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. <laughs>